Thanksgiving service, we'll be reading from two passages, one in the Old Testament, one in the New, that speak to Thanksgiving. And the first will be Psalm 100, six verses. And then from the New Testament, portions of the book of James, the brother of our Lord, from chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Would you please remain seated as we hear from Psalm 100 and read along with me. And then, as is the tradition in your church, I'll ask you to stand. And we'll stand together for the New Testament reading. And now from the Old Testament, the inerrant and the infallible word of the living God. Psalm 100. A psalm of giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. And now the New Testament reading from the letter of James, chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Would you please stand? Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable to Thee, our rock and our redeemer, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. It is possible to strive for the ideal and sometimes miss the obvious. In a county in the mountains of western North Carolina, some years ago, there was a kindly first grade teacher 
who on the week before Thanksgiving was trying to help her students learn to read. And so she chose a simple passage. Thank you for all you have done. And so she placed the sentence. She wrote the sentence with chalk on the board. And she, she asked the students each uh, to recite it to her personally. So she went desk by desk to see if they were learning how to read. And she got to this one little mountain girl, and the little girl didn't say anything. And the teacher said, now, Bobby Sue, I know you can, you can say that first word now. Try again. And Bobby Sue strained and strained, and you could tell the poor child was in anguish. And the teacher wanted to help her. She was a very compassionate teacher. And she said, now, Bobby Sue, as she placed her arm on Bobby Sue to help her, she said, thank, thank, thank. And Bobby Sue said, with great exasperation, she looked up, she said, teacher, I am thinking, I am thinking, I am thinking, but I can't remember that word. Well, sometimes we can miss the obvious, especially around Thanksgiving. With the greatest ideals, we can be distracted from the obvious. The obvious is the state has requested you to pray and to thank God for his blessings, which comports perfectly with all of the scriptures which tell us that we should, in fact, be living a life of thanking God. Paul would tell us that we should be thanking God at all times, that thanksgiving is a spontaneous doxological response of the Christian life. So the government asking us to give thanks isn't a very difficult request, but we can be distracted by Turkey Day football, and even good things like food, food, and more food. I mean, I can be distracted by it because my wife is a very good cook, and I look forward to it every year. In fact, in our family, I look forward to something she makes every year. I don't know what it is, but it's pink and it's fluffy, and we call it the pink stuff. It's not jello, it's creamier, it's got cottage cheese in it, I think, but I wish you could have some. It's so good. We can be distracted by family. Family's good. Our daughter is here with us today, and her family is here. Uh, 
the rest of them are up in the mountains uh, having, uh, with the boys, uh, having a good time, and they'll be back with us soon. And, and that's going to be in millions of families around the country, and that is very good. But it's not all. It's a result of the core of thanksgiving. We can also be not only distracted, but deluded into thinking thanksgiving is something else, like the pilgrims were giving thanks to the Indians. We're giving thanks to each other, which is good. Thanking our lucky stars, which is not good. But the most obvious is that we are to thank God. And to do so is a very powerful theological statement that God is good and God is great. Let us thank him for our blessings, known and unknown, seen and unseen. And a place in the Bible where this is profoundly articulated is Psalm 100. The old 100th has been sung in Presbyterian churches and other English-speaking churches and now around the world since the early years of the church. It's a very popular part of the liturgical worshiping heritage of the church, and for good reason. It is a rich theological vein within the corpus, the mind of the Bible that helps us and realigns us back to the true meaning of thanksgiving. I would like to borrow some of the language of cooking to say that Psalm 100 is a divine recipe for a great thanksgiving. And it is so, as we look at it, because it contains three irreplaceable, essential ingredients. And that's what we'll look at this morning as we look at Psalm 100. And as we consider also that New Testament reading in light of Psalm 100. Now, the first essential, irreplaceable ingredient for a great thanksgiving according to Psalm 100 is what I will call missional worship. The psalm begins, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. In verse 4, 
Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Now, I say that the ingredient for a truly great, a real biblical thanksgiving is missional worship. Because Psalm 100 is a psalm about gathering the world together in order to render praise to Almighty God. You will notice the the psalmist not only instructs Israel to come before the Almighty, and incidentally, the word LORD in your Bible should be in all caps, signifying this is the holy name of God or the covenant name of God. So it was always that the covenant name of God was not only for the Jewish or Hebrew people, it was going to be for all the world. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And when I say missional, which is a fairly new word, I mean intentional in evangelism, intentional in telling the gospel story to others. Thanksgiving, we might say, is not only missional, it's also eschatological. What do I mean by that? It's focused on the future. The psalmist is focused on bringing all the world together in a new heaven and a new earth where all tongues and tribes of people will be worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is what St. Paul talks about in in chapter 8 of that wonderful epistle to Romans when he talks about creation itself groaning and waiting for that day to come because when Paul or when the psalmist says all the earth, this is so comprehensive that it is not only all the people of the earth but the very cosmos, all of creation James says that we as people are first fruits of all of the rest of creation. So all of creation has been created for the glory of God. And Psalm 100 says we are to come into the presence of God with worship but our worship is missional. We are always gathering others in with us. Our worship is centrifugal. It's powerful. It's going out to others and welcoming others with us. There's always an empty chair. And it's moving toward that glorious day. The church that we served in Chattanooga, Tennessee, had a wonderful tradition that went back to 1838 when it was founded. And that is they, they celebrated a day of thanks. Well, when President Lincoln proclaimed a day of thanksgiving, they moved it to that date. And so we had a Thanksgiving Day service. It was one of my favorites. We sing the old 
Thanksgiving hymns. I had a devotional. And for the rest of the service, we gave thanks. Literally, individuals and families came up to the front and gave thanks. All spontaneous within the order of that service. And we sang, gave the benediction, and went to our respective homes. One rather chilly day, there was a solitary car on Macaulay Avenue, normally a bustling thoroughfare where First Presbyterian Church sits, and the driver had passed church after church that was closed, and she was very lonely. There was no family. She was divorced, and there was no one around. She was new to the area. There were no friends. And she saw the open door to our church. She pulled over, and she would tell me later that the sense of coldness and isolation was replaced by a sense of warmth and family as she looked in and saw these people on Thanksgiving morning. And she parked, and she sat in the back, and she heard the Thanksgiving. The thanksgiving of the people saying, thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you, Lord, for our children. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us through this difficulty. Thank you, Lord, that in spite of the difficulty, I've learned this, the, the multitude of thanksgiving. And God spoke to her heart. And she became a believer in Jesus Christ. I had the joy and privilege counseling her, and then asking her vows and hearing her profession of faith before that same congregation, and then watching her give thanks on subsequent Thanksgiving Day services. Giving thanks is healing. Giving thanks is transformative. Giving thanks is evangelistic. It is the command of God that we are able to render with the duty, the joyful duty of love out of what Christ has done for us. Well, that's the first ingredient to a joyful thanksgiving, a true and a great thanksgiving, is missional worship. Corporately, as we are seeking to fulfill today before the Almighty, but also individually. 
Is that your thanksgiving? Is the ingredient a part of your life at home? There's another very important ingredient, and I'm getting to it really with uh, even that last statement about you and your personal life of worship. It's not only the ingredient of missional worship, but an ingredient that we might call personal dedication. Look at verse 3. The psalmist says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. James says, Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of all of His creatures. The psalmist is saying, you are his people. And so, this is a vital ingredient, and that is that you have a personal relationship with the Almighty. I'm interested as a professor at seminary to talk with my students and to learn that often the great existential question is still ricocheting around in their minds as they're going through seminary. Who am I? And a search for significance, a search for meaning. But I like to challenge them from Scripture to say, is there possibly a greater existential question than who am I? Could it not be that the deeper existential question within your soul and the souls of human beings is really, who am I in relationship to everything that I see? Who am I in relationship to this great, vast, expansive universe? And the psalmist says, know that the Lord, He is God. He made us. We're His. We're His people and the sheep of His pasture. When we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, those questions are answered because there was a division at creation between God and man, and that's why that great existential question haunts mankind. There's a hole, there's a gap that must be filled. And when it's filled, there, there's a sense then, no, not a sense, a reality, because the psalmist says, no, know that. There's a reality of a union with God. Your home. For you to be able to even fulfill the requirement of the United States government this Thursday will mean that you're going to have to acknowledge There is a supreme being.
that supreme being has identified himself with a name, the covenant name, the unspeakable name that our English transcribers, translators called Jehovah. That name which was revealed to us as Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And he has spoken. And when we respond to him, we are told that we are his children. We are that beautiful metaphor that's used throughout the scriptures, the sheep of his pasture. It speaks to a very touching, personal, deep knowledge of God about you. Now that's a necessary ingredient. Now there's a third. And that third ingredient we find in one of the most powerful passages in all of the Bible. Verse 5 of Psalm 100. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. It is not only missional worship. It is not only personal dedication. But the other ingredient is covenant renewal with God. That's essential. What do I mean, covenant renewal? Focus on those words in your Bible, which could appear as everlasting love, steadfast love, in verse 5. It is one word in the Hebrew, as I have mentioned to you in previous sermons, it is the word chesed. It means God's Covenant love, God's love which has been framed inside of his promise. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I will live the life I require in the Ten Commandments for you and apply it to you. And I will take upon myself the stripes that should be yours. It is a holy promise made in blood that is ratified and re-ratified throughout the Old Testament until Jesus comes who is the fulfillment of that and who mediates that in the new covenant or the new testament. He mediates it to us. He fulfills it. It's his life that covers us. It's his death that atones for our sins, and by his death on the cross, we are free. That's the renewal. But listen what else it says. When that happens in your life, it is not only about you. 
The year was about 1777. And this farmer from Orange County, North Carolina, whose name was Isham, a strange name in our ears now, but a, a, uh, a fairly popular name then, Isham William, a patriot, joined in with the other band of brothers and joined an infantry regiment in the insurgency, the colonial insurgency against the despotism and tyranny of a mad king. His brother, James, joined also in another regiment. He would never see him again as he was one of those who died at Valley Forge. Isham fought in a southern campaign. Camden, Calpins, and by his own signature on an affidavit, was present when Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown, and he heard that Thanksgiving prayer of Washington. But he returned to a farm that was devastated by the war, like so many others. Life was not easy, and it was not the same. He came to Anson County, North Carolina, which then stretched from almost the coast to Mecklenburg before there was a union, a union county. He was a clergyman, and he preached the unsearchable riches of Christ as an itinerant minister along the North Carolina, South Carolina disputed border. And he begat Michael, and Michael begat Michael Joseph, who begat Joseph Austin, who begat Jesse Ellis, who begat the one who's before you. And I like to think that maybe that old patriot preacher farmer prayed for generations he would never see. But what is true about my story, which is not unique, it is the story of Christians, that when you receive Jesus Christ, you break the pattern of sin, not only in your life, but in generations who follow you. Not that every one of them are guaranteed to be believers, but the grace of God is guaranteed to be shown to them. A veritable line of faithfulness unto a thousand generations, he says, of those who love him. That's where family fits into thanksgiving. So fathers, 
this Thursday when mother says, will you pray? It's a very serious matter and a great honor. Because there are generations yet unborn Those are the ingredients. This week I saw something I haven't seen in years and years, and it was a, a little figurine, <laughs> a little figurine by a, a very prominent North Carolinian you might not have heard of. His name is Dr. Tom Clark, Ph.D., Reverend. Many years professor at Davidson College, and he retired to pick up a new career as a sculptor. He sculpted gnomes, but he also sculpted biblical figures. And my favorite figurine of Dr. Tom Clark's, and maybe his, is that of Parson Patterson, who was a real person in Tom Clark's life back in the 30s. During the Depression years in West Virginia, there was a Reverend Patterson in a mining town who was suffering greatly. And the figurine, the little statue, is of a pulpit. And it's of the minister. He has an old row bone that's not connected and he's leaning into the pulpit as if to express with his smile, his serenity, the pulpit and his stature, the dignity of worship, the dignity of the Word, and the love and closeness of God in the midst of hardship. And I thought as I looked at that, that was what helped people give thanks in the most difficult times of our history. The ingredients that I've given you, that God has given you from his very own word, are the ingredients that make a great thanksgiving. And a great thanksgiving is not just a spread. It is a spread of God's grace in your life that allows you to thank God in the midst of any circumstance, any trial, because he made you and he loves you. And he sent his only begotten son for you. And the power of his Holy Spirit is here today. And the risen Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit walks that aisle today. And into these seats. And into your lives. The thanksgiving door of this service is open. Won't you come in? Let us pray. Lord, let your blessing be upon this people.
that they, that I may know you and that you love us and that we are yours, the sheep of your pasture, the first fruits of all of your creation so that we may be thankful. And indeed, the door is open for the lonely and the cold that they may find warmth and family through your spirit and the loving, welcoming arms of Jesus of Nazareth who still says, come unto me. And we say, thank you, Lord. Amen.